From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour starring Tom Sherwood. I'm Kojo Nandi. Tom Sherwood is our resident analyst and contributing writer for Washington City Paper. Tom Sherwood, welcome. Hello, everybody. Later in the broadcast, we'll be talking with D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine and Eric Lutke, the majority leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. But right now, we'll be talking with Daniela Chesler, who's a WAMU reporter covering Virginia politics. Daniela, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tom and Daniela, how important is it that in today's news, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she is endorsing Terry McAuliffe for governor of Virginia? First, you, Tom. Uh, well, I was stunned by this. Nancy Pelosi was just now on live television talking about the insurrection on Capitol Hill, the impeachment of the president, uh, Joe Biden's $2 trillion plan uh, for, to get the country kick-started again and then virus. And suddenly there's this uh, release by Terry um, McAuliffe that she's endorsed him for, for governor. Well, then it turns out I checked in in Richmond the financial reports are due out today, and it will show that uh, the Speaker Pelosi has endorsed, has given him money. And, and Terry McAuliffe is, is trying to use his, is using his national connections to solidify support in his race, both in fundraising, endorsements, and he's trying to lock this race up early against several other strong competitors. But Daniela Cheslow, how influential is Nancy Pelosi likely to be in a Virginia gubernatorial election? I think it's not just Nancy Pelosi. I think it's the fact that Terry McAuliffe is a national name brand. So within Virginia, he's made his own case by showing up. Every time you go out to the polls in Virginia, it seems like Terry <laughs> McAuliffe is there. You know, you'll, there'll be a surprise press appearance in the middle of Fairfax, you know, in early voting, and all of a sudden, oh, it's Terry McAuliffe. But I think that Pelosi's endorsement just shows the muscle that he brings to the table with his national clout. And I think it's going to be really disappointing to some of his rivals who are struggling just to rise above the fray. Jennifer Carroll Foy resigned her seat to devote her time to making a name and raising money, and she has a formidable opponent, as do the other candidates, uh, you know, Jennifer McClellan, Lee Carter, and Justin Fairfax. Well, Daniela, Virginia lawmakers kicked off the 2021 legislative session this week. What precautions is the General Assembly taking to keep lawmakers safe during the pandemic? Have any rules changed? Yeah, well, so on the, Demo on the uh, House of Delegates side, we saw the same setup they had in a summer special session. They met remotely from day one. So Speaker Eileen Fillercorn opened the session with just her, the clerk, and a mace. Uh, there were no lawmakers in the chamber. In the Senate, um, they met again at the Science Museum where their desks were spaced out. And one of those desks was covered in a black tablecloth. Lawmakers were putting roses on it. That was the desk that belonged to Republican Senator Ben Chafin, who recently died of COVID-19. He was a beloved southwestern cattleman, and I think his death put the danger of the virus into focus. So now the mask requirement is mandatory. Lawmakers agreed to rules saying that they could have possible daily temperature checks, weekly COVID tests, and Republicans in the Senate agreed to rules that allow for remote voting when over the summer special session they had been more skeptical of conducting their business online. 
How about safety in general? The FBI warned us about possible attacks at state capitals in all 50 states. Virginia taking any special steps to protect the capital? Absolutely. There are plywood boards on the windows of the Capitol now. There's fencing around the building. And also uh, permits for a protest that had been planned on Monday have been withdrawn. Um, And I think one of the important things to note is that, in a way, COVID helps with the security because most of the lawmakers are not in Richmond. They're remote. And those who are are not at the Capitol. They're at the Science Museum. But I think, you know, we cannot forget going into this weekend a year ago, Thousands and thousands of Second Amendment advocates came to Richmond, and I reported on it. People were there from around the country, many of them carrying AR-15s or other firearms. So uh, Richmond authorities and the Capitol Police are trying to avoid that this year. The Virginia Citizens Defense League still plans on coming. They're going to have a car rally instead. Democrats have a majority in both chambers of the General Assembly. Um, What are, and and of course, uh, Governor Northam is a Democrat, what are their priorities for 2021? So I think you can look at Northam's State of the Commonwealth address that he gave on Wednesday night. Big headlines. He wants to end the death penalty. He says that it often uh, that the black Virginians suffer more than white Virginians. He wants to legalize marijuana. Um, We also heard him talk about COVID relief, adding more money to the state's rent relief program. He wants to give schools an infusion of cash. And he's looking to take down a statue in Capitol Square of the former Virginia senator, uh, Harry Byrd, who led the effort to resist integrating schools. Daniela, uh, here's Tom Sherwood. Daniela, I watched the speech uh, Wednesday night. It seems like it was two months ago, but you know he he also <laughs> talked about a, a, a state fifteen is fifteen dollar minimum wage. He also talked about paid family leave. It's important to note this is his last year in in office. He'll be leaving office next January. Uh, there'll be a new governor. The governors in Virginia can't succeed themselves. But it was a a an amazingly progressive speech, uh, and the Democrats are in charge of the House and Senate, but will he get all of this stuff done? You know, I think things like the paid leave question are really still open. Uh, You have more progressive Democrats like Elizabeth Guzman pushing hard for that. You have people who are more connected to the business community saying, it's been a terrible year to own a business in COVID. How could you heap more burdens onto Virginia business people. I think in other things like minimum wage, Democrats last year passed a minimum wage hike, but then they put it on ice uh, because of COVID. And so I thought it was interesting that Northam touted that, and yet the state has yet to roll it out. People don't see that increase in their pockets. How long, how long is this session going to last? Normally it's a 46-day session. The Republicans tried to um, limited to 30 days. They had that long special session last summer. Is there a set time now how long this session will last so everyone can get out and campaign for office? All the legislative seats are up this fall. Right. So Republicans say we had 83 days of special session. Why should we have another long session? And Democrats say there's a lot to do. So right now they've agreed to a 30-day special session, but they can call they can rather a regular session, but they can call a special session and they pass rules that say that bills that they start in the regular session can continue. So effectively, we may see a 46 day session or frankly, as long as they want, because a special session has no set term. The Speaker of the House, Eileen Philip Horn, a Democrat from Fairfax yeah, County. One thing that will keep it from being if- already stripped three lawmakers of their committee assignments. Tell us what happened there. 
Yes, so we're talking about Dave LaRock. He's in Loudoun County. Ronnie Campo in Lexington and Mark Cole in Fauquier. They're all they're all Republicans. And they signed a letter to Mike Pence asking him to nullify Virginia's election results. And it's important to note there have been no serious claims of fraud in Virginia. So Filler Corn stripped each of them of a committee assignment. And she, her spokesperson wrote to me that their attempt to cast doubt on our elections process in order to impede the peaceful transfer of power between one president to another is an affront to our democracy. LaRock told me he holds a view that a fifth of Congress holds, and that's true. And among those congressmen who voted to object to electoral college votes are all four Virginia Republican congressmen. Uh, Tom Sherwood. Well, I was just thinking one of the reasons this legislative session won't last too long is because the people who are running for election and re-election, the, uh, the ones who are in office now, cannot raise campaign funds until after the election after the, the uh, assembly adjourns. That's right. You know, and I do wonder about the political future of Dave LaRock. He's the last Republican, really, in Northern Virginia in the House of Delegates. The Leesburg Town Council has called for him to resign. So has the Loudoun NAACP. And he did himself no favors by using an outdated term to describe African-Americans in his response to them, some of those criticisms. But bottom line, he says, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, Virginia Senate Democrats moved to censure one lawmaker, Senator Amanda Chase. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so they have filed the, the paperwork to do it. It was Senator John Bell, um, and they say that she helped catalyze uh, the insurrection at the Capitol. So yesterday, Amanda Chase took the floor, and she uh, she kind of evoked the language of Black Lives Matter to say, say her name, Ashley Babbitt, referring to that protester who was killed by police as she was trying to invade the Capitol. Um, and she also said these people were not rioters, they were patriots. That really sparked a firestorm. You had Senate Majority Leader Dick Saslaw saying, you can't call yourself a patriot if you're wearing an American flag, but you've got a Nazi insignia on your shirt. And I think it's important to note that we've seen a number of Virginians arrested in connection with these riots, including a guy who was wearing a shirt that said Camp Auschwitz staff. Before we let you go, allow me to get one caller in here, Bonnie in Fairfax County. Bonnie, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. I am a longtime uh, Virginia resident, longtime Democrat, and have been very active in the Democratic Party. I'm, I am stunned also that Terry McAuliffe at this point already has the Democratic national establishment behind him. I won't go into his climate record in Virginia, but it's you know despicable with his support from our power company, Dominion. Uh, what chances can we ha- does, are there that another candidate can overcome this influx of money with him? with his success in raising funds well, at this early date. Daniel, you pointed out he's a national name brand, so we probably shouldn't be too surprised. Can we say one more thing about Amanda Chase? Sure. Amanda Chase is a state senator from around Richmond. She's running for governor. The Republican establishment in the state is horrified in many respects that she's running. Kirk Cox, the former Speaker of the General Assembly House, is running for governor. He's trying to be a, a more of a, a moderate conservative or a conservative moderate, and they're hoping that she will not get the nomination uh, for the Republicans because they feel they'll just go down to defeat again. They've lost every year since, what, 2009. Daniela, in the minute or so we have left, what will you be keeping an eye on as this session continues? 
Kojo, I think we're going to keep on seeing that governor's race heating up. I'm curious to see also whether you're going to see a, a firm opinion from the Republican Party on statements like Amanda Chase's. Right now, they have refrained from commenting. And I think we're going to see how far Democrats can get with some of their criminal justice reform agenda items, like ending qualified immunity or with things like paid leave. Um, this is really the Democrats' game because they hold the majority in both chambers. Daniela Cheslow is a WAMU reporter covering Virginia politics. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Eric Lutke. He's the majority leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. If you have questions or comments for him, give us a call at 800-433-8850. Send us a tweet at Kojo Shaw. Email to kojo at WAMU.org. I'm Kojo Nambi. Welcome back. Joining us now is Eric Lutke. He is the majority leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. He's a Democrat. Um, Mr. Majority Leader, thank you for joining us. Yeah, of course, Kojo. I'm going to miss hearing your voice on the radio every day. Well, we'll talk a little bit later about that. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the broadcast. But, Tom Sherwood, before we get specifically to the Maryland politics issue, let's talk about the coronavirus because the the UK coronavirus variant, which apparently spreads rather rapidly, has been detected in Maryland, and Governor Hogan says it's probably in every state in the country by now. Uh, yes, that was Anne Arundel County, and the, the delegate may have more to say about this. But you know, the concern is that this variant of the coronavirus is spreading more rapidly, significantly more rapidly than the other strain that we've been so familiar with. And the question has been whether or not the vaccines, and I know you got a vaccine this week and I did too, uh, whether the vaccine that we're getting now, and we get our second dose in a couple of weeks, whether or not that will protect us from these uh, these variant strains. So it has people, we have enough to worry about already, and now we have to worry about that. I do want to mention that I got mine at the United Medical Center in Southeast Washington, and they assured me that they will be reopening for registration on Tuesday morning so that if you want to call there, you should be able to get an appointment if you call on Tuesday. But Eric Lutke, about the uh, variant that's been found in Maryland and whether or not the vaccination protects against it? The early information I've seen uh, has said that the, the vaccination does protect against the variant, but it, it remains absolutely essential as the vaccines roll out that people continue to practice social distancing, wash their hands, stay home when possible. This is the most uh, the, the, the biggest rate of COVID we've seen in this country since the beginning of the pandemic. We have to get it back under control. And, Tom, sure, with people who were living in this area in 2017 remember the brutal stabbing death of Richard Collins, the second, it also, the third, it also drew nationwide attention. This young black man was uh, getting ready to graduate in a, about a week, and then he was stabbed to death. Sean Urbanski has been found guilty of that, and on Thursday he was sentenced to life in this case. But um, there's been a change of the law since then. Tom, sure, I'll start with you. Yes, the uh, the concern was in the case of the, uh, Lieutenant Collins' uh, brutal murder, uh, there was a hate crime charge, 
in addition to the actual murder, and the judge said he had to throw it out because the law was not good enough, not clear enough, not appropriate enough, uh, clear enough for him to uh, allow that charge to go forward. And so the legislature did, in fact, with some pressure from the Collins family and many others, did change the law. Delegate Luthi, you care to talk about that? Uh, look, I work at the University of Maryland. The bus stop where Lieutenant Collins was murdered is uh, steps away from uh, where I teach classes. And uh, that crime had a, a, a terrible impact on our community uh, and led many of our students to not feel safe. I hope that the judge's decision gives members of the University of Maryland community some, some comfort. But we, we absolutely need to be aggressive in prosecuting hate crimes like this. We last spoke almost a year ago, and since then there's been a big day for you, Delegate Lutke. You got married in September. <laughs> Congratulations. I, I did. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was, uh, we, we were going to do it in May, but we put it off, and then we did it you know, outdoors, socially distanced in the fall. I'm, I'm, I'm glad my wife uh, decided to be my wife. Did you did you get married in a state park? And I've been really impressed that you've been making a point to visit every state park uh, in the in the uh, in the state. Obviously, I, did you get married in the state park? We we did not. We spend a lot of time hiking together in the in the state parks. The the joke is that that uh, people refer to my wife sometimes as the state park selfie girl because we take so many selfies. But no, we got married in our backyard. <laughs> Well, Maryland lawmakers began the 2021 legislative session this week. We're still in a pandemic. What precautions is the legislature taking to ensure safety? How often will you be meeting in person and what will be handled virtually? Uh, we, we are operating under completely different procedures than we normally do. The House and Senate are doing it slightly differently. But as for us in the House, we're only having basically pro forma sessions now uh, with myself, the minority leader, and the speaker for the next couple weeks just to do procedural work. We're going to be holding our uh, committee briefings and hearings and voting sessions all remotely. Uh, sometime in February, probably, we will start bringing members back. We actually have split the chamber into two chambers, which will be communicating through video. Um, and we'll be conducting business remotely, using shortened sessions, mandating masks, doing everything we can to keep everybody safe. Let me let me ask you about what's it like in Annapolis. Every every state capital has had a threat made against it from these emanating from this January sixth riot here in Washington, and threats to every state capital. What is the mood in Annapolis? You know, I think people are uh, concerned, but but comfortable, given that the Maryland State Police and our our local and federal law enforcement partners have really stepped up. We've had an increased uh, law enforcement presence in Annapolis over the past few days. Um, But, you know, I I think there's a a lot of reasonable concern on the part of of regular citizens and and anybody in the state house complex. Um, I think the state police are doing everything they can to keep us safe. Okay, now, their lone, the lone Republican, Andy Harris, in the Congress has supported the overturning the election and has been not as critical of the violence as some people thought. You were among 71 state delegates and 13 state senators who've called on him to resign. Um, he's not likely to do that. Let me ask you, in the redistricting that's going to occur in the coming year, is it likely the Democrats will redistrict the Andy Harris district so that he can't win, just like uh, you did 10 years ago with, um, in the 6th district? Well, we're, we're not even talking about redistricting yet. The, the numbers uh, from the Census Bureau that, that we would use to draw districts haven't even been reported to the state yet. Um, but, you know, I, I will be, whatever happens, uh, spending time and money 
in his district doing everything I can to support a candidate to defeat him. Um, he's, a, frankly, a disgrace. And um, that district was represented for many years by very ably by great elected officials, including Wayne Gilchrist, who, by the way, was a Republican and, you know, one of my early political heroes. Um, you know, that district deserves honorable reputa- representation again. On to legislative business. Governor Larry Hogan recently proposed a $1 billion relief plan, which he wants Maryland lawmakers to take up. His plan would provide financial assistance to some struggling Marylanders, $450 for individuals, $750 for families. What are your thoughts on the package, and are Democrats going to counter with an alternative? Well, we've actually been talking about COVID relief options for months now in the legislature, and and some of the governor's ideas track with some of ours. It's a little hard to comment on the governor's plan because he actually hasn't provided it to us yet. He hasn't introduced legislation. All we know about it is what was announced at a press conference. Um, But, you know, early indications are there are some flaws to some of the things he's proposed. For example, that uh, $450 or $750 grant is tied to people who have uh, gotten the earned income tax credit, but there are tens of thousands of low-income Marylanders who are eligible for that credit but didn't take it on their taxes. So his proposal would miss tens of thousands of people in need. Tom Sherwood? Another big issue is the Kerwin legislation, the multi-year $4 billion change in education across the state, local governments doing more, the state doing more. Uh, The governor vetoed that. Where is the status of that going into the session? We are going to override that veto. Uh, We will not step back from our commitment to making sure every kid has a a great education. Um, But but how can it still be implemented? Can the plan still be implemented given the financial shortfall that's resulted from the pandemic? Absolutely. First of all, I mean, to be clear, the people that have opposed Kerwin opposed it when the economy was in good shape and they oppose it when the economy is in bad shape. The the common denominator is they oppose funding public schools. Um, But the good news is that we've been planning for the implementation of Kerwin for years now. We've been putting money away. The plan is fully paid for already up through 2026. So there, there will be basically no current fiscal impact um, if, we, if we override the veto, which we plan to do. Another big issue is sports betting that will be uh, confronting the legislature. There's lots of lobbying going on about that. Someone called, I think, Maryland Matters, uh, called it the Lobby Palooza. <laughs> uh, and then there's also maybe after all the election this past year with the drop boxes and voting uh, absentee or early, there could be changes in voting in Maryland to make some of these changes permanent. What about sports betting and what about uh, how people will vote? What about holding your response to those questions while we take a short break? When we come back, we'll have you answer those questions. Our guest is Eric Lutke, the Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. If you have questions or comments for him, give us a call at 800 433-8850. Send us a tweet at Kojo Show or email to kojowamu.org. I'm Kojo Mav. Welcome back. We'll be talking with Attorney General for the District of Columbia, Carl Racine, shortly, but we're still talking with the Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates, Eric Lutke. And when we took that break, Delegate Lutke, Tom Sherwood had posed a couple of questions to you and ordered you to remember them. 
<laughs> yeah, I think the first one was about sports betting, which I, I'm hopeful yes. will get done this session. The thing that held us up last session was trying to find a way to make sure that women and minority-owned businesses had a real opportunity industry uh, will be rolling out a proposal in the next couple of weeks that I think uh, will will point us in that direction. And on, on democracy, look, the, the seditious assault on the Capitol last week, I think, was a reminder to all of us that democracy is a fragile thing. And we have to, at every possible opportunity, work to strengthen it. We are going to be uh, proposing a series of bills uh, making changes to expand access to the ballot box, make sure every citizen has the right to vote, including uh, making sure those mail-in ballot drop boxes become a permanent thing, expanding early voting, allowing people to fill out one application to permanently get mail-in ballots instead of having to fill in a new one every election. Uh, so I'm looking forward to those bills. The pandemic has exacerbated the disparities in health care for Maryland. What are Democrats' priorities for addressing health care during the pandemic? Sure. I, I think, you know, we've been focused on health care disparities for a long time in the legislature. We actually have a subcommittee that focuses specifically on disparities. Um, the pandemic, I think, has made the general public more aware of them. Um, but the, those disparities are, are unacceptable. And, you know, I think there are some short-term and long-term ways that, that we're going to try to address them. Short-term, focusing on things like telemedicine, telehealth, so that people have more access to uh, providers. Long-term, uh, there's a proposal which is being introduced by Delegate Jazz Lewis, one of my colleagues from Prince George's County, to recreate something called health enterprise zones, um, although they're under a different name here, and, and uh, try to make sure we're getting more providers to locate within low-income communities so that, that people have providers nearby. Tom Sherwood. Put on, put on your uh, Montgomery County hat for this, uh, mm -hmm. the reopening of schools. Uh, President-elect Biden has said one of his goals is to get the public schools reopened, and that sounds like good news, but also we've learned now that this week that Montgomery County Superintendent Jack Smith announced yesterday that he's going to retire in June, and there'll be, I guess, a big search to find his replacement. But that's some more turmoil in the public school system that's already in turmoil. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's in turmoil. I think, you know, it's facing some challenges. It's a big system. It's one of the largest in the country. I think Jack Smith's done a great job. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for the Board of Education. I think they'll find somebody good to take over for, for Jack o, uh, over the summer when he retires. Um, as to reopening, uh, we absolutely have to get vaccines in the arm of every staff member uh, who wants them before we reopen. We absolutely have to make sure the schools have the resources they need to provide for the basic you know, physical safety requirements of reopening. Because even after people get vaccines, they're going to need to wear masks. They're going to need to be washing their hands. I mean, this is not going to go away overnight. Mark in Crown's Crownville, Maryland, has a question about that or thought about that. Mark, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. I appreciate it. Um, so I, I've seen on social media a couple posts uh, talking about uh, the rate at which we're getting vaccinated and counties like Anne Arundel and Montgomery talking about starting back up at the beginning of March, but our own lawmakers are saying that that's not going to be possible. Um, I'm just curious about, first, the disparity between those numbers, and those timelines, and then second, why no one's talking about getting the kids vaccinated before we go back. There are countless studies and anecdotal evidence that kids aren't like immune and invincible to this, so we're just going to send thousands of kids in small spaces hoping that they wear masks and then possibly spreading this disease back to families. It, it just feels like we're endangering children 
to try to get them out of our houses. And I just don't feel like that's worth it to society. Delegate Ludge? Yeah, thanks, Mark. That's a really good question. First of all, my understanding is that the vaccines that we have have not yet been authorized for use in uh, people under the age of 18. Um, So, you know, that's a a scientific FDA question that we have no control over. I also agree. And look, I've got four kids and uh, learning at home is is rough, but I'd rather they be safe. Um, So, you know, I agree that we need to be very careful about reopening and not rush to it. Um, But it's a decision, frankly, that I think should be made at the local level. It should be made in communities by educators, by boards of education, by parents, by students, um, so that, you know, because it'll depend on the conditions in a particular county whether it's safe to reopen. Tom, sir, would you get the last question for Delegate Lutke? Okay, very quickly, Governor Hogan, Governor Northam in Virginia, and Mayor Bowser, all joined together this week to urge Americans not to come to the Capitol next week for the inauguration of Joe Biden. Have you attended an inauguration? And what do you think about the nation's capital being closed off to Americans for this important uh, transfer of power? I have actually never been to an inauguration, only because um, standing on the National Mall for hours in the cold is, is uh, you know, <laughs> I, I can watch from home. Um, I, I think we're all horrified. Um, that we have had to implement the kind of security that we have in Washington. But it's the result of years of of disinformation, uh, years of, of frankly, seditious speech. Um, I I think it's always darkest before the dawn, and I'm hopeful this is the darkest moment, and and we will be experiencing the dawn as as President Biden, President-elect Biden, is sworn in. And and I'm hoping that we will reopen our nation's capital where I live as quickly as we have closed it down. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Delegate Latke, thank you so much for joining us. Of, of course. Have me in the studio next time so I can get Tom to sign my copy of Dream City. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Eric, you mean that book's still available? Eric Ludke is the majority leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. He is a Democrat. Joining us now is the Attorney General for the District of Columbia, Carl Racine. General Racine, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Kojo. Hey, Tom. Hi, Attorney General. Carl Racine, we're still trying to understand what led to that deadly insurrection last week at the U.S. Capitol, but it seems that whatever happened, a lot of D.C. laws were broken during that violent insurrection. What specifically is your office looking into when it comes to charging individuals? Because we know that the U.S. Attorney handles most of the criminal cases in the district. That's right. So the federal prosecutor, the U.S. attorney, the acting U.S. attorney, uh, Mr. Sherwin, is responsible for now in leading the federal prosecution. He's looking at all kinds of federal offenses related to destruction of property at the Capitol, breaking and entering, unlawful entry, more serious charges like sedition, uh, and other charges related uh, to murder and potential felony murder. My office is focused on the following unlawful possession of a weapon without having it properly licensed, same with ammunition. And we're also looking at curfew violations. The money charge that we're looking at is the inciting violence charge, um, which could, of course, uh, be applicable to the speakers, uh, the individuals who spoke in advance uh, of the uh, raid of the Capitol, as well as those who were raiding the Capitol uh, in the midst of all that chaos. How much more difficult is your job, given that very few rioters were arrested on the scene and now have to be ID'd and tracked down from video and other evidence? 
that makes it certainly more uh, laborious, uh, and it makes a um, high level of collaboration with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, MPD, uh, and other law enforcement uh, really uh, necessary. And that's what our team is doing. Uh, and so district residents should rest assured that the Office of Attorney General is fully investigating all potential charges within its jurisdiction and, uh, where appropriate, uh, will not hesitate to bring those cases. Tom Sherwood. You've got, you've got national attention with your suggestion, well, not suggestion, saying that you are looking at this in, um, inciting to violence charge possibly to bring it against the president of the United States. I would assume that would be after he leaves office. Um, if that's a misdemeanor, it sounds horrible, inciting to violence. I believe that's a misdemeanor. One, would you really be seriously thinking about charging the president of the United States in or out of office? And two, this is the politics hour. There's going to be a new U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia. Some people have suggested you might be willing to be appointed by President Biden to be the new U.S. attorney. And I ask you what you think about that. Tom, you're always pushing my mind, and I appreciate that. <laughs> um, first and foremost, with respect to charging the president, I'm a firm believer uh, that no one is below nor above the law. Uh, and uh, if the president's conduct rises to the level of violating the law, we'll charge the president. Uh, the president obviously will have a robust defense. Uh, hopefully it's not Rudy Giuliani, um, for his sake. <laughs> uh, and uh, he'll... Uh, clearly um, argue that his speech was protected by the First Amendment and that any mob action was not inspired by him. I think there's a compelling evidence to the contrary. All the lies, misinformation, disinformation about who won the election, the calling on people to fight, the calling on people to not be weak, you know, all those things line up uh, as pretty good evidence, I think. And that's what my team's evaluating. Um, with regard to the U.S. No, go I'm, ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, U.S. Attorney, go right ahead. Sure. Um, with regard to the U.S. Attorney's Office, let me just start by saying I'm on my sixth U.S. Attorney or acting U.S. Attorney in six years. That means that that office um, is quite destabilized. Um, it's not had consistent leadership nor consistent priorities. Certainly the local has not been uh, important, I think, in the main after uh, U.S. Attorney uh, uh, Machen and Cohen left uh, and Channing Phillips. Uh, the uh, Trump appointees, generally speaking, have done uh, Trump's bidding. And we saw that with the interference in Michael Flynn. We need a U.S. attorney who knows the District of Columbia, who's an experienced trial lawyer, who has a good, sound managerial experience, and who will promise to Eleanor Holmes Norton and her commission that they'll remain U.S. attorney for more than a cup of coffee. I say, how about a minimum of a three and a half year commitment? Is that you? I'm not Would interested. In, no, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's, a, it's the best U.S. attorney's uh, job uh, in the country, in my opinion. Some would say the Southern District of New York uh, is better. Okay. I would beg to differ. Uh, but for me, no, I don't see myself. Um, putting my hat in the ring for the U.S. attorney position, okay. I will say I have spoken to people whose name you'll not get me to say, who I find <laughs> to be, you know, really competent, credible and care about the community. And I'll advocate for them. L let me wrap this up on the on the possibility that you may bring some charges uh, inciting to violence. 
Is it, is it that you will bring charges, Just you're just determining what they will be, or is it possible you won't bring any charges at all? It's possible that no charges um, will be brought after a thorough evaluation of the evidence and the law. Um, the last thing we want to do at the Office of Attorney General is to bring a criminal case uh, when we don't have a good faith basis that we could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt uh, since it's a misdemeanor to a judge. Um, if we believe the other uh, that we can, then we'll bring it. And we're in that process now of evaluating it. Then and you said you were going to do it very quickly. You. Can I give you some news here? I know Please you do. all like to break news. Uh, Kojo, it relates to you. Uh, I hmm. just want to let you know that today I authorized my team of Cracker Jack lawyers to file an action in federal court to prevent your retirement. <laughs> More about that later in the broadcast, because Tom Sherwood has a different word from, from retirement. I use reorient, reoriented. He uses another word. But we have two callers who want to talk about the insurrection at the Capitol. And I'm not sure you can answer their questions, but I feel obligated to take their calls. So we'll start sure. with Dem in Arlington, Virginia. Dem, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, how you doing, Kojo? Doing well. Uh, yes, I wanted to talk about how, you know, the Capitol and what was going on, kind of like black people been feeling like that for since 1600. And when I looked at that TV and I seen people storming the Capitol and the police letting them in, I seen slave owners all across that wall. And to paint that picture of people that's right there making mandatory laws, and the reason that we've been minorities for thousands and hundreds of years, I'm trying to figure out what, what exactly did you think what was going to happen? Because now you're creating a civil war amongst y'all because you done left black people out for so long that it is no equality. And NASA, Fortune 500 company. Well, I can like, tell you, I can, I can tell you what the attorney general can speak to. Carl Racine, a lot of black people find themselves, like our caller, very disturbed by what they saw last week from a predominantly white crowd of rioters. And our caller is concerned about some of the images that still remain in the capital of slaveholders. Well, and you can sum me up uh, to be right along with the caller uh, and uh, members of our community, black, white, and otherwise, who recognize plainly and vividly um, that there were different standards of justice and different standards of protection around federal assets uh, when African Americans and white folks and folks from other um, states uh, came down to D.C. for the BLM protest on June 1. We saw brigades of federal officials folks you've never seen before, uh, people from the Bureau of Prisons, from Homeland Security, National Guard from countless uh, states that had Republican governors, all protecting federal assets without any hint that any person who was part of the Black Lives Matter protest, again, multiracial individuals protesting, including myself, um, were going to threaten the federal assets. And so, you know, if ever there was a plain visual of contrast to see, take a look at the protection of federal assets, including the U.S. Capitol, on June 1, uh, before a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest, and take a look at the protest that occurred last week. So I understand plainly what this caller is talking about. What I would add is there are attempts 
from elected officials who should be ashamed of themselves to try to equate the terrorism that occurred on Capitol Hill, where our police officers courageously fought for their lives and our democracy, with the occasional violence and um, destruction of property that occurred during the BLM protest. There is no equation to be made. It is outrageous and cynical. And these elected officials who seek to do that must be called out. Here's Richard in Northwest Washington. Richard, your turn. Yes, hi. Um, question for um, Carl Racine. I'm great admirer, first and foremost. Um, question about jurisdiction. As I understand it, most of the serious misconduct that occurred uh, on Wednesday was on in the Capitol or on the Capitol grounds, which is federal property. Do you, as the uh, D.C. Attorney General, have jurisdiction over those offenses? And if so, how would you establish it? That's one question. And the other is, how would you respond to re- recent reports that uh, that protesters are seeking pardons from President Trump for their misconduct because he, after all, put them up to it? Do you think there will be uh, pardons? So those are two, two separate questions. Sure. Well, thanks for the, uh, the question and you know, appreciate the, uh, the compliment at the outset there. Um, with respect to jurisdiction, it is true, uh, as uh, Kojo said at the outset, uh, that the federal prosecutor has the predominant uh, jurisdiction over all of the events um, that occurred. My jurisdiction is limited to just about four or five charges, um, ammunition, guns that were not licensed, curfew violations, and this important incitement of violence offense. I think if we get ourselves to a place where we have statehood, we're going to have more jurisdiction over adult offenses, um, and I would welcome that. Um, second, as to the pardon issue, needless to say, a pardoning domestic terrorist who would run over the Capitol in a violent way and build a plank and with a noose and a platform to hang and hurt uh, elected officials, including uh, Vice President Pence, um, would be, I think, the most outrageous pardon action of any president in history. Not sure that precedent matters to President Trump. Tom Sherwood. Right. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, I heard you on CNN this morning not only talk about the violence and the stemming of violence and bringing charges, but you also threw in a plug for statehood, so that will endear a lot of people to you. Uh, let me ask you my political question. I ask about you and the mayor all the time. The mayor was just now live on CNN talking about uh, what she's doing for the inauguration. And she has asked the federal officials to coordinate with the district officials and not just uh, flood the city with with, uh, federal officials. Have you and the mayor, during all this uh, turmoil, have you and the mayor had a personal conversation about what's going on and how you're working together? Or is it still pretty much on the staff level? Uh, The clear answer is yes, Um, we have spoken. I think we both care deeply about the District of Columbia. And again, you know, look, um, political rivalries are oftentimes overstated. Um, You know, the fact is the Office of Attorney General is a new office in the district government. People didn't know how uh, its leader might, um, you know, sort of conduct himself. Um, I think they now know that we're focused on 
uh, D.C. values um, and really building the best attorney general office in the country. Um, I think that we've been largely accepted in government. And I always look to collaborate uh, with the mayor and her team at all times. Mayor Bowser has asked the Department of Interior to cancel any permits on federal lands during the inauguration. It has not been granted, but do you think it should have been? I think that uh, right now uh, our goal has to be to maximize and preserve the safety uh, of the inauguration. I'll note there are a couple of other dates that are quite important. Uh, The online chatter from uh, hate groups And to call it chatter is almost a little bit too kind. Um, These are hate pronouncements and planning um, and, you know, and and directive uh, targeting of of individuals and buildings. Um, They're focused on January 17. That's a date uh, where folks were encouraged to bring guns at their discretion. That's what the posters say online. There's also January 18. You've got to be really careful on the 18th. That, of course, is Martin Luther King's birth, uh, birthday holiday. And today, of course, is Dr. King's birthday. Um, the hate groups hate Martin Luther King, of course. Um, and um, they've already identified the 17th as a date to be alert. I think that the protective measures that were taken uh, right now uh, make a lot of sense. Uh, including, you know, maximum safety. I'm sorry to say that because we love our open uh, society. Um, But, you know, I think we open up a little bit after the inauguration. Tom Sherwood. Uh, On another pressing public safety issue is the vaccine distribution in the city. Every region, it seems like, is having trouble getting the vaccine out to the people who need it. Have you personally had the vaccine? Um, What are you hearing from the people you talk to about how well the district is doing in terms of combating the virus? Uh, It's a great question. I have not had uh, the vaccine. I'm not uh, yet in one of the heightened (laughs) categories. Um, And uh, while I work every day, I'm not so essential so as to jump the line. uh, And I'll just stay safe until my turn. now, with respect to... You know, Only have about 30 seconds. Okay, to me, the number one issue is getting the word out uh, to our wards that have been hit the hardest, where there might be the most skepticism, and clearly that's Ward 7 and Ward 8. I would love to see Councilmember Trayon White uh, perhaps take the vaccine in a public way um, and uh, encourage uh, people in our community to get behind okay. the line with him. Tom, of course, we haven't talked about one of the smallest stories of the week yet, which is why it is less, because it's about me. We announced this week that I'm stepping back from the Daily Show in April, but the good news for fans of this broadcast, the Politics Hour will continue, so I'll continue to host, and you, Tom Sherwood, will continue on as resident analyst. I don't know how we slipped that one past management, but somehow we did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the Washington Post asked me what I thought about that. Um, I said, you, you over the last 20 plus years have guided the region um, with, with, on every issue that you can think of, serious and not so serious. And for the last 12 years, I've been your sidekick on these Friday shows. And I said to the Post, the only complaint I have about you is you're entirely too polite, too NPR oriented, <laughs> and you don't interrupt windbag guests, not the ones on now. Uh, I'm not talking about him, but that, that's why I'm here. Well, to, 
So well, one I, of the I'm reasons proud I'm proud of you, Kojo. The station is proud of you. The people are proud of you. And I'm, I'm just glad to be associated. One of the reasons I'm cutting back is because I've lost my favorite listener, and that is Carl Racine's mom. Carl Racine. Well, you know, you know, she would uh, take that 88.5 with her, uh, obviously, uh, to, uh, to her grave. But I want to say one thing there. You know, we grew up uh, hearing Walter Cronkite, you know, and that's the way it is. Um, Kojo, what you've done uh, just by your authenticity, your consistency, and your compassion is you've established trust in the community. Um, we trust you so much we like Tom. Carl Rossini, <laughs> the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. Coming up Monday, we'll talk with the Howard Divinity School Dean about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. And Kojo for Kids welcomes Brian Pinckney, who's illustrated award-winning children's books, and Dr. King. That all starts at noon on Monday. Until then, have a wonderful weekend. I'm Kojo Nam. The Kojo Nambi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sidney Granite, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Inez Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstorff. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.